Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. He came to preach the gospel, and he says he targeted the poor. Now, that's not that he didn't love all or there isn't good news for all, but there's a special target of the poor because the physically hungry and hurting and needy, which at any time in history has always been the vast majority of people, they are most aware of their need and, and desiring of change. Today we begin a new two-part study entitled The Anointed One. Pastor Sam will take us through Luke chapter 4 starting in verse 14 and we start by looking at Jesus' teaching in the synagogue where he reveals what his mission and purpose is. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're picking up at verse 14. We're looking at Luke 4, 14 through 30. The title of our study, The Anointed One. If you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of Luke, up until this point, we've seen the importance of the work of the Spirit of God as it was the Holy Spirit who really connected with Mary in the conception of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who descended and remained upon our Lord at his baptism. It was the Holy Spirit who led him out into the wilderness and preserved him and during that time of temptation. And now it's the Holy Spirit who leads him on back up north through Samaria and back into his hometown of Nazareth, where he is going to be giving us his mission statement, where he will read and explain exactly what it is he came to do. Well, we read first of all in verse 14, then Jesus returned and the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He's been down in Judea. That's the southern kingdom. He's moving now north. Uh, Galilee, that area, many Gentiles in it. And so news of him went out throughout the surrounding region and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. By the way, in between his baptism and temptation and this return, some things had been taking place in the south. He'd already turned the water to wine. And when you do something like that, word's going to get out. He'd already cleansed the temple there in Jerusalem. He'd already met with the Samaritan woman on his return trip and explained to her the importance of living water, water that satisfies eternally and, and internally. And, and so now he returns to the town where he grew up. You remember Jesus, born in Bethlehem, escaped, of course, with Joseph and his mom, Mary, to Egypt. And after the death of Herod, they returned and he was raised in this little town of Nazareth. It says he returned where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, it says he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Synagogues, if you're unfamiliar with the concept, they were formed after the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people of God. 
And so wherever you had 10 families spread throughout the land, they would form a synagogue. And that place was, well, the social and spiritual center of the community. The services in the synagogue, well, very interesting because, of course, they continued after the return and the rebuilding, but they went kind of like this. The service would begin with a reading of the Shema. You're familiar with it, even if you don't know it. Let me read it to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I like this. They would begin their time together declaring, we serve the one true and living God. He is one. And what he wants from us is that we would love him with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our strength. Next would come a benediction. Then there would be a reading of a psalm followed by a priestly blessing. That blessing comes from the book of Numbers chapter six. And it goes like this. The Lord bless you. The Lord make his, oh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So they come declaring they serve the one true and living God. That, that God's desire for them is to love him with all that's in him. And then his blessing would be bestowed upon them. After this, there would be prayers and then a reading from the law, the Torah, one of those first five books of Moses. Finally, a reading from the prophets, followed by its interpretation and explanation or exhortation. This is the part of the service that Jesus participates in. It's actually well into the thing. It's been there for a while. He's been there for a while. But uh, the way these synagogues were... Well, organized, there was a synagogue leader. He had one assistant, but very few, if any, had a full-time rabbi. Most of the time, rabbis would travel from city to city or town to town or synagogue to synagogue. And this, of course, opened the door. And we'll see this later with the Apostle Paul for him to come and share in the various synagogues. That's exactly what we read Jesus had been doing in the Gentile regions. But the synagogues, of course, were Jewish. He was going and he would always share there first. Now he returns home. He does what he was accustomed to do. Show up on the Sabbath. Show up for the service. And uh, they give him the scroll. Why? He's a rabbi. He can read the Hebrew. He knows the word and he can understand and teach it. Says they handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Actually, they would have given him a scroll. They just update this so we don't have to explain what a scroll is. But the scrolls were interesting in and of themselves. Many of them three or four or five feet long. Some of them as long as 35 feet. And they would be rolled up two ways. They were written on both sides. Isaiah, by the way, 66 chapters, a little mini Bible, as it were. And, and so this would be a massive scroll. They give the scroll to him and he's going to unscroll or un, undo the scroll so that he can find the place that he's going to read for us. As he uh, opens the scroll... And the, he begins to read. And the first thing he has to say is the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Verse 18, because he has anointed me. 
The concept of anointing so important biblically. Why? Well, it meant at least two things. It was an affirmation of God's call and appointment on that life. In other words, God ordains and we ratify. So when they anointed, they were ratifying the call of God on that man's life. They did it with the priest. They did it with the kings. You can go back and read. You'll see they anointed King Saul publicly. They anoint King David publicly. Well, first privately, later publicly. And uh, as you go through, you'll read many times of, of someone being anointed, being ratified. And also it is a picture of the empowerment, the work of the spirit, apart from which they would never be able to accomplish their God-given task. Now, this anointing, it actually passed on to places and people you might not expect. There's a guy named Cyrus in Isaiah 45. He's a pagan king, but he's the one that God had chosen to release the children of Israel from their bondage there in Babylon and send them back. And as the story goes, and you can find it in the scriptures, well, the, 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 the scroll was brought to him and it showed him, hey, God chose you. God named you before you were born. And here's what God wants you to do. Set his people free. Send his people back. Cyrus did just that. And God calls him Cyrus, my anointed. It's very important, again, concept in the scripture. Satan, prior to his fall, was called the anointed cherub. It means that God had a call on his life, a ministry for him. And, and of course, Satan rebelled against God. He, he fell from, from that place of serving the Lord, deciding to exalt himself instead of exalting God. So no longer God's anointed cherub, now the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. Well, I already mentioned kings and priests would be anointed. It's interesting that Jesus was anointed numerous times. Here he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. But prior to his arrest, he'll be anointed by Mary, Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus. And, and when Judas chimes in and, and others join in saying, oh, this shouldn't be happening. This is a waste of that precious ointment. He says, let her alone. She has anointed me for the day of my burial. After his death, a group of women will come to anoint his dead body only to find that he had raised from the dead and was no longer available for that particular anointing. Well, when he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, now he's going to tell us what exactly he came to do. And the first of the six things he mentions, and remember, he's just reading from Isaiah. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Gospel, of course, means good news. To preach just means to publicly proclaim or herald or publish. And so he says, I'm here with good news. Now, he presents this news in different ways, depending on who he's talking to. To Nicodemus, the good news is you must and that means you can be born again to the woman at the well. Uh, I have living water that will not only refresh and restore you, but give you life eternal and life abundant. And, and so Jesus brings the good news. After his baptism, first words from his mouth, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And don't miss the significance of that. For the kingdom to be at hand, he's saying the king is at hand for the king brings and establishes his kingdom. Well, 
He came to preach the gospel and he says he targeted the poor. Now, that's not that he didn't love all or there isn't good news for all, but there's a special target of the poor because the physically hungry and hurting and needy, which at any time in history has always been the vast majority of people, they are most aware of their need and, and desiring of change. And, and so he comes to preach to the poor. But understand, while this is certainly talking about poor physically, He's also, well, there's an application for us spiritually, the poor in spirit. Matthew will tell us we'll be blessed. Why? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it means I recognize, and hopefully you as well, that if there's any good in me, it's the good God is doing in me. It's God within me. And in other words, it's not like I was mostly good and I needed a little of God's goodness to get me up over the edge. No, he says there are none righteous, no, not one. I possess nothing apart from him that's acceptable to him. And this is very important because we're going to see that the crowd he's talking to in this particular passage in his hometown in the synagogue they miss this point entirely. Everything starts out real well by the time we get to the end of the story. They're trying to throw him off a cliff in an attempt to murder him. And we're going to see how they go from thinking, wow, what gracious words to we got to kill this guy. And it happens in a split second. So I've really studied it. I want to make sure that never happens when I'm teaching. But um, <laughs> the bottom line is we're going to see that Jesus forces the issue because he's into exposing hearts. Yes, he wants to comfort. Yes, he wants to encourage. Yes, he came to preach good news. But the bottom line is he can't forgive a sin we won't confess. And we won't confess a sin we don't know we're guilty of. And so he's all about exposing sin. Well, he comes to preach the gospel then to the poor physically and the poor in spirit spiritually. He says, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And hey, there are many in our midst today, many of you brokenhearted because of the loss of a loved one or because of, of things that you've actually done and brought on yourself or sin that others have committed that has impacted and devastated you. The word for broken here speaks of somebody who's crushed, who's shattered completely. And a only our Lord can deal with such an issue, such a heart. There is no pastor or preacher. There's no psychologist, no psychologist or counselor that can put together a broken hearted man or woman. But listen, our Lord is the great physician. He knows what makes us tick. He knows how to make us right. And that's part of what he comes to do. He says, I came with the gospel. Why? Because apart from the message that he came to die for our sins, was buried and rose again, there'll be no eternal life. There'll be no abundant life. But, but that being said, he comes to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, he's not saying he was going to be, you know, giving people bail or, or uh, you know, getting them out of jail. He's not talking about those who were physically captive. No, he was talking about those who were spiritually captive. The word uh, liberty here means to pardon or bring deliverance or forgiveness or remission. And the context of that would be sin. And why is that the issue? Because whatever our physical circumstance, I mean, we could have everything or we could have nothing. 
But if we're right spiritually, we can find contentment in the situation we find ourselves in. And Romans 6 tells us something very important as it would relate to what Jesus came to do, setting the captives free. Romans 6 says, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave of sin. And I don't know about you, but I'm really happy to know that because when I was a young Christian, I was led to believe not by my church, but by my culture, that there were some things I would never get over, that there were some things I would always struggle with. But the reality is Christ made me a new person and, and, and the chapter of my life that led to my conversion, hey, it closed at my conversion and it took me a while to learn what I had in Christ but I am no longer a slave to my selfish, old, sinful nature. I'm no longer a slave to the, the one who would accuse me after tempting me. And, and you're no longer a slave to sin either. Having turned from sin and trusted in him, well, we become what Paul declares he was, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And he says, no one can serve two masters. If you really have given your life to the Lord, he is your Lord. That means your master and your savior. Well, he says, I came to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Now he'll do this physically, but again, he's going beyond showing compassion and meeting a physical need. He's, he's wanting to show that he and he alone can open eyes spiritually. And I believe as we share the good news, if there's anything we can do to prepare the hearts of those we share with, it would be just pray for them because only God can open their eyes. And, and if your eyes have been opened, you know it was the Lord. You know, you didn't just figure it out one day. You woke up and you know how the little light bulb goes on. You see those cartoons. It's like, oh, I have a good idea. I'll give my life to the Lord. That was God's idea. He'd been speaking it to your heart for years and months before you responded. But he says, I came to give recovery of sight to the blind. After he heals a man born blind, he gets into a conversation with some of the spiritual leaders. And at one point they say, oh, so are you saying we're blind? And they meant spiritually. And he says, if you were blind, your guilt would not remain. No, their eyes were open and they were willingly and knowingly rejecting the light of the world that stood before him. He says he came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And uh, hey, again, this is the vast majority of people at any given time in the first century and the 21st century oppressed. They would have thought, by the way, the most of them that he was talking about crushing Rome and establishing the kingdom of God. And that's why they'd get all excited. Oh, he's going to do the Romans in. And then, of course, he didn't do what they expected. He came to do what he was sent to do, but he wasn't operating in the way they thought he would. We'll see why in a moment. It's actually, well, a part of this text, but not in our text. And so what happens is they're thinking he's going to crush the Roman rule. But when he isn't really doing that, instead, he's going around doing good and healing and ministering and teaching and preaching. Even John the Baptist, who first identifies him, saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John will say, hey, after he's been arrested and imprisoned, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? I'm confused by what's happening, John's kind of saying. Well, here's the deal to set at liberty those who are oppressed. There is a freedom 
that happens within, that nothing that happens without can ever challenge or change. Then he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is an exciting revelation in and of itself. You see, this whole passage, Isaiah 61, is tied to, well, the celebration of Israel that's called Jubilee. You'd love it. I wish we still did it. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, all slaves were set free, and all the land reverted to its original owners, the owners God gave it to. So you could find yourself, well, many of us have found ourselves in a situation similar to this. Um, in those days, if you became impoverished, you couldn't provide for your family, you could sell yourself into slavery by, to your neighbor or someone else. Today we call that getting a job. And so, uh, but, but basically that, that's what happened. You become a servant of this other person. And then if things were really bad, you'd actually sell them your land. But God had put it in his law that it couldn't go on and on and on like that. That when the year of Jubilee came, the debts were canceled, the slaves were set free, the land was returned. And so they know this context. They understand that that's what Isaiah was talking about. And you got to know that there was some excitement in the room. They're like, hey, if this is true, we're in for an exciting ride in the next weeks and months and years to come. He says, I'm going to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, at this point, and here's what's happening, he's standing out of respect for the word of God as he reads it. At this point, he's going to roll up the scroll. He's going to hand it back to the guy who had given it to him. And then he's going to sit because that's what they would do in order to teach or, or, or to explain or exhort. And as he sits, well, all eyes are going to be fixed on him. But before we look at what he has to say, let me share what he didn't share. You see, Jesus stops mid-sentence. He stops at a comma, though there was no punctuation in the original. He would have certainly been reading it with some punctuation. He knew that each of these were major ministries in and of themselves, major issues in and of themselves. And so he stops and doesn't read something they would have all been expecting. You see, they were familiar with these prophets. They were read to them as we shared every single week in the synagogue services. And so the seventh thing that he would have shared and didn't share is this. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you studied through Revelation and well, many of you have because we just finished it. You know that, that we've seen the day of God's vengeance, the day of his wrath is still ahead, but rapidly approaching. In fact, in our Wednesday night study, as we go book by book, looking at an entire book each week, we're going to see in the prophetic books, we're going to focus on the reality of end times events. And we're going to focus on the reality of Jesus and those end times events, his place and part, because we're looking at Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. But all of that to say this, had he read this last half of the verse, the day of vengeance of our God, we would have never been here because that would have brought about that last seven year period that day of uh, judgment, Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation and great tribulation period. And, and so 
In any case, Jesus rolls up the scroll. He doesn't read that because these first six things he came to do his first coming. The seventh he will accomplish at his second coming. So we read it or should have. Verse 20, he closed the book or in reality rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue fixed on him and he began to say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Remember, Isaiah wrote with an immediate local context, but, but Isaiah had an application for then and an application for the future. It, it was a, a local and immediate fulfillment and then a literal future fulfillment. And Jesus is saying, hey, these things that Isaiah spoke of, they were written of me. And I'm here to tell you, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to accomplish these very things. And these are what I've come to do. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Sam quoted Romans 3.10 when he said that there are none righteous, no, not one. This is actually good news. None righteous compared to whom? Oh, we can compare ourselves against each other and we're always gonna find some who are more righteous than others. And then we're gonna find others whom we consistently outshine in the righteousness category. But it's not about anyone else. God is the benchmark, and nobody ever has even come close. So why is it good news? Well, it means we're all in the same boat. We all have this in common, which means each of us needs Christ equally, and we can be unified in this, and not divided by our pride that would seek to place us higher than our other brothers and sisters. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.